Okay, welcome back to the Dungeon of Doom, the Lions podcast here at MLive. Uh, I'm Kyle Mikey. I'm Ben Raven. Ben, uh, how you feeling, man? You know what? I'm I'm good. I'm I'm a uh, full trooper mode today. You know, two posts up, doing a podcast before noon. Got home at about three thirty last yeah. night. Did a wrestling show with uh last week one of last week's guests uh and uh i i know we've got an exciting show i wouldn't miss it for the world lomas brown on the horizon very exciting stuff and that's all right i'm a highly caffeinated man like dan campbell so i'll survive so am i i i i subsist off of uh caffeine but yeah no it wrestling huh that sounds interesting <laughs> area of expertise but i love it <laughs> you know hey <laughs> so yeah, we got we got Lomas on the program here on, on the back half um, of DoD. Um, I, I just thought it was it would be interesting to bring him on and you know get some perspective on the last Lions team to win a playoff game thirty years ago now. Just with the Matthew Stafford stuff happening in the playoffs right now, and Lions kind of a talking point. Just with the, you know with the obviously with the trade and oh my god, I get exhausted just thinking about the whole Stafford discussion. But you know obviously he didn't win here. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it was his fault. Some of it was wasn't you know good player wasn't enough to save an unsavable situation goes to LA immediately wins two playoff games outduels Tom Brady I think he's got the highest passer rating in the playoffs right now so yeah it's just there's a lot going on playoff wise right now with I guess with the Stafford stuff yeah the uh NFL record 185 career starts before his first playoff win gets it done in his first chance in LA and I mean while it's surprising it's not surprising at all I mean shoot we've watched Stafford play for as long as we did and just watching him take that shot downfield in a clutch moment like that's like the least surprising thing he saw his best receiver in single coverage and the dude's a big time player and he's finally getting the chance to show it off it's just 366 yards to outduel Tom Brady and he's a game away from the Super Bowl what an interesting ride it's been these last 365 days <laughs> yeah I wasn't surprised at all and yeah the, the only thing I'm surprised by in this whole conversation is the people who are still anti-Stafford and I think they're in the minority but there are fans out there and maybe some in the media although I think those are um disappearing pretty quickly but like you you, you see it mostly on Twitter maybe uh, and I spent too much time there maybe that's where it comes from maybe it's on me Ben but like like yeah, I just get exhausted by the the hate, um, the 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 blindness that some people have about this guy. Did like was he enough to save the Lions from what they became? Of course not. They didn't win a playoff game. They didn't win a division championship. They didn't do anything team wise, and that's always part of a quarterback's legacy, especially a quarterback like Stafford, who was taken first overall, was the center of a rebuild, and got twelve years to make it happen. And it didn't happen. So yeah, like it didn't work with him, and he he to that end was a failure. But any Anyone who's looking at the nuance of this situation understands that the, look, it, it was an unsavable situation. I don't know if Tom Brady or any other single player in the league could have like made the Lions be successful with what they had down the stretch. And I think Ben, like one of the things that drives me a little crazy in this whole conversation is that people treat the Stafford thing like a monolith, like, like, like he was one thing for 12 years and it just didn't happen. Whereas I see it as like, like he, he changed a lot over the years. I, I started on the beat in 2013. That was kind of the end of his gunslinger days. Caldwell takes over in 2014. He becomes like, he progresses into like a real game manager. And I think in some ways it helped cure his uh, turnover issues and, and stuff like that, but it wasn't 
like a good thing either, you know? And I think in his later years, he was able to kind of marry those two extremes into his game. And like the Stafford I saw, uh, I saw from like maybe basically 2016 on uh, was a really, really good player. And I, I think we all saw it with the comebacks and, and elevating the play of Golden Tate, of Marvin Jones, of all these guys who had career years playing with this guy. I mean, look what he's doing with Cooper Cup now. Cooper Cup was a good player before. He's a better player now, nearly set the the, the record. Obviously Stafford was a good player. Uh, he wasn't good enough for the Lions, but then they had a historically bad defense by the end when he's playing some of his best football. There, there's nothing one person, no matter who that person was, could have done. And then he goes to LA, are surrounded by superstars and instantly wins. And he's the best player in the playoffs, the best quarterback in the playoffs anyway. Like, I'm just not surprised because anyone paying attention with over the years, especially these past like five or six years where he became a really good quarterback, just you could see it. It was there. It just the lines obviously uh, couldn't make it happen for him. Yeah. I mean, I think the most exhausting thing about the Stafford discourse is that the anti, I mean, you don't have to love Matthew Stafford. You don't have to think he's the greatest quarterback in the world, but to, actively talk like this guy's not what he is just feels performative at this point and it feels very disingenuous because it's like when you watch that guy play how do you not see one of the most gifted arms and just like a just such an advanced understanding of the game is what I see I mean the stuff I mean we talk about Cooper Cup I mean the stuff Odell Beckham has been Odell Beckham since he got back since he landed in LA I mean Van Jefferson looks like a it's just it, it just feels all very performative and it's just there's a lot of goalpost moving in this conversation too because everybody likes to bring up the one time Stafford had an elite defense well guess what that team went to the playoffs guess what they were 10 minutes within their first playoff win in 25 years like he on the road against a really really good team (laughs) in Dallas against a really good team that had to have one of the most infamous calls of all time the next week to keep them from the NFC title game I mean it's just like when he had a defense I mean yeah he had Calvin Johnson all those years but like the one time he had an elite defense this team could have won with, they were close. I mean, then that's the NFL. It's a game of inches. It's a game of millimeters. It's just, it's all very performative. It's exhausting. We both spend too much time on Twitter. I will agree 1000% with you there. <laughs> it, it does bring up an interesting point though. Like, I, like I think that the, I, I think the trade was a win-win. The Stafford trade was a win-win for both parties. The Lions after 12 years just needed a reset and a fresh start in a lot of ways. And they got two first round picks plus Efatou Malfanwu uh, and Jared Goff to, to kick off this rebuild uh, four first round picks now over the next two years. That's a huge bounty and the line's going to be, be better for it. But then, like, you know, we've talked about it before. You, you, you can't watch these playoffs that are unfolding before our eyes and see where the NFL is trending and think Jared Goff is going to be the answer, right? Like, you need excellent quarterback play to compete in today's NFL. It's certainly compete on a consistent basis, which is what the Lions are trying to build. I'm just intrigued by this notion that while the trade was a win-win and I think the Lions won, I think they got a very good return on, uh, you know, for, for Matthew Stafford. It's also a true thing that you're not going to go anywhere in the NFL without a good quarterback. Stafford was a good quarterback. I don't think Jared Goff is that kind of quarterback. I think he, I, I just, I know he did it a few years ago um, with a super team around him, but the Lions don't have a super team and I don't see one happening anytime soon. And the quarterback class is a real hit and miss thing this year. And that's, I mean, I mean, We've talked about it before and we'll talk about it more this offseason because this quarterback situation is just really, it's, it's a dilemma for the Lions because I think they're doing so many good things in this rebuild. There's so many things to like about Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell and what they've done so far in 12 months, building out the roster and re- resetting the culture. But you just traded away a quarterback you can win with and now you don't have one. And it, 
I mean, it's really going to be, a, I think, a tough deal to go find one here in the next, you know, 12 months or so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's just like, like you said, I mean, watching last weekend's games, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Matthew Stafford and Tom Brady, those guys are in different planets than what Jared Goff is. And that's not an insult to golf. It's just that gap is real. Those teams are where they are because of the teams around them, but because those guys are the best at what they do. And it's just, yeah, we've, we've said it. We'll say it again. Like you said, I mean, this draft class is very questionable at quarterback the Lions have a very good opportunity at the senior bowl to get their hands on a couple intriguing guys. I mean, a couple guys that are in the mix for the first round, the Bailey Zapp kid from Western Kentucky's in the mix and middle rounds, but it's like, I, I, this team needs so many things. And if you're not sold on a guy being your guy, whether this year, next year, or the next year, it's just like, you have too many needs and the way Jared Goff played to finish the season, maybe it is better to kick it down the road. We've said that again. It's just, it, 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 but like you said, it feels like they're stuck. They're doing so many things right, but there's a plateau to that. They're doing so many things right. They've got so many tools and assets to build with and build through, but it's like, it's stuck until they answer that one question. And that question isn't going anywhere until they try and answer it. You mentioned the senior bowl. I'll, I'll be down there uh, next, it's next week. I'll be down there in Mobile, um, eating some uh, fried seafood and uh, probably watching some football too. <laughs> um, and hopefully we'll have some podcast uh, content from down there. I, I expect that to be the case for now. Um, you know, again, it's, it's all Stafford and it's all playoffs and it's the, you know, the lions for a team that, you know, now has the longest playoff wind drought in the league are a real, you know, talking point in these playoffs, uh, which is maybe a Nice uh, segue into our, our guest, uh, Lomas Brown, uh, an alum from the last Lions team that that won the playoffs. Uh, here's here's that interview. All right, Ben, I'm excited about our next guest here, our old friend uh, Lomas Brown, uh, uh, you know, a friend of the program here. Lomas was a, a consensus All-American during his days at, at Florida, sixth overall pick of the Lions in 1985, played his first 11 seasons in Detroit, seven straight Pro Bowls, uh, one first team All-Pro, two second team All-Pros, uh, and sailed off into the sunset with a uh, Super Bowl in Tampa, by the way. Not a bad career. Uh, <laughs> in recent years, Lomas has served as the uh, color man alongside our friends, the great Dan Miller on the team's radio broadcasts. Lomas, that's quite the uh, resume there. <laughs> Man, you made the big fella sound important, man. I got to something back in the day. <laughs> got to make it look good, my friend. Got to make it look yeah. good. Yeah. So, Lomas, yeah, like, you know, Ben and I are, are talking here on the podcast a lot about Matthew Stafford, right? There's just this, um, you know, this, this love affair right now. And uh, with Stafford, with many fans, other fans are maybe upset about what's happening with the draft pick and that he couldn't get it done here. But, you know, with, with the Lions, uh, you know, kind of one of the talking points of the playoffs, we thought it'd be fun to take a look back at, at 1991, um, 30 years ago now, 30 seasons ago, you're on that, that great Lions team uh, that won the last playoff game, the only playoff game of the Super Bowl era. Man, but I mean, I know it was a long time ago, Lomas. But what was what was that night like? Oh, uh, it it was awesome. It, it, I just remember, you know, just how many people were at the Silver Dome, how loud that game was, the emotions of that game. Uh, you know, going up against a formidable Dallas Cowboy team that later went on to do some great, great things, went three Super Bowls. Uh, but to go to toe-to-toe with those guys and, the, you know, for the most part, you know, get the best of them, you know, when they were when they had their trio there. And I just remember the celebration afterwards in the locker room and all the, you know, local celebrities that were there, Bill Bonds and, you know, just all all the guys that were local celebs that were there in the, in the place and just where we were, just the emotional high 
of being where we were and thinking that we could just carry this on, that it was going to carry on. You look in that locker room, there was a lot of us, but all of us were young. You look at the Benny Blaze, the Jerry Balls, the Chris Spielmans, the Herman Moores, you know, all the great guys, Kevin Glovers, you know, all the great guys, Mark Spindlers. You just look at all these great players we had in all these different positions, and you just thought we were just going to keep going and going and going and going and finally get to the Super Bowl, but it just never happened, and it never materialized that way either. When you look back on your career, is that like some? Is that like a top memory? Like when you look back, those moments in the locker room, the feeling of beating the big three from the Dallas Cowboys in the playoffs. Like, is that a top memory for you? I mean, you did a lot. Absolutely, of- absolutely, man. Right up there with you know, of course, all my Thanksgiving Day games because I just, I just love that tradition. But you're right that that game, right that that game beating Dallas. You know, and, and just really the emotions of it, because if you guys remember, you know, that was when Mike Utley went down. You know, Mike got paralyzed that earlier that season. So from us going to our all-time low of the season to going to your all-time high of the season, which was beating the Dallas Cowboys, I mean, those are some emotional swings. And, you know, Mike was a big part of it. And, you know, just all the other guys that I forgot the name off that were on that team that could help bring that era. That was an era that we had that was with the Detroit Lions that I think you have to carve out in Lions history. How did the uh, atmosphere at the Pontiac Silverdome that night and that, that game, how does that memory compare for you, Lomas, to you know playing in the Super Bowl? Man, I'm telling you, it was probably as loud as the Super Bowl. I'm telling you, I, I, I think, man, I'm telling you, Kyle, 18 years and playing in almost every stadium, man, I'm telling you, I, I, I just can't think of maybe – Maybe the uh, Seattle, uh, the dome out in Seattle that they used to have, maybe that compare. But but other than that, I don't think it was allowed the place, you know, to play at, especially when we were winning, when we were at full capacity. Man, it's just unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't hear the guy talking to you right next to you. You couldn't hear anything, man. I mean, it was unbelievable, man. It it, it was just a feeling, man. You could just feel the energy. And that's the thing that, you know, we just hadn't been able to give the crowd at Ford Field yet is that energy the way you really, really feed off the crowd. They got a little bit of it, but they hadn't gotten it to where it's been, you know, a buildup, a real buildup and a real importance to it, to where the fans could really bring it. And that's something that we talked about with Dan Miller, your broadcast partner in our first episode, is just like how hungry this like fan base is for a winner. And like, you hear those moments of Ford field with the roof starting to come off. Like, I guess a two-parter, like how does like you've been in Ford field when it's going crazy on Thanksgiving. And I, the main memory for me is that chiefs game in 2019 and recent memory, just like, how does it compare when it's rocking to the silver dome? That's something for me wondering, I never got to go to a lions game at the silver dome. So I'm just wondering how does Ford field compare when in those rare moments that it has been rocking in the last 15 years? Yeah. I mean, again, you think about it, we had an advantage, because we had 20,000 more because we could hold 80,000. And, you know, to the rafters, we could hold 80,000 up in the Silver Dome. So, you know, it was just that. 
And it, I, I just think more so, Ben, because I don't think it's changed. I think some of the same fans that rooted for me are still out there rooting for the Lions, probably still go to the games and everything, still put their, their passion into it. I just think it's, again, the Lions have to play some important games. That's when you're going to feel it. That's when you're going to feel it, when they're in some important games, when there's some games that really, really matter, when things are on the line. You know, that's when I think you're going to feel that, be able to feel, you know, the heartbeat of the fans. You're going to be able to feel, you know, what the fans could bring to the game. They truly are. When they say the 12th man, that's no lie. They truly are the 12th man when you're out there on the field and you're out there and you need the crowd. I've been to, uh, I think every stadium now besides Vegas and uh, Kansas City, Lomas. And I and I think, you know, maybe besides Seattle, that like that playoff game against the Seahawks a few years ago was, I mean, the press box was like shaking. It was so loud there. But maybe outside of Seattle, like when the lines are good or relevant or playing on a, on a big stage, Ford Field to me is as loud as anywhere I've been. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, it's just they're so far out of contention most years and especially the last, you know, four years that you just don't ever get to see those glimpses. But, you know, I, when I talk to people around the league, I, I think there's this like idea that because the lines have been so bad for so long that the fans aren't into it. And, and that's what you see in most cities. And when Jacksonville's not good, they don't have a fan base like that's, mm-hmm. that's pro sports in a lot of regards. And I've never really seen that so much in Detroit. And, and when the lions are good, man, this fan base is crazy. And I, I just, man, I was like six, seven years old when you guys won that 91 game. So I, I'm really too young to, re, you know, remember it, but I, I, I mean, I can't imagine what the energy would have been like in Detroit when this team was as good as you guys were. Oh, it was, it, it was awesome, man. It was, you know what you could compare it with a little bit, just on a smaller scale. You could compare it to when we had the Super Bowl here, when we hosted the Super Bowl here in oh, what, 06, 08? Yeah, when we hosted, Like, again, you remember how the city was firing around here, how everybody was walking down Troy, how it was just a feel about things, and, you know, people were out, and it, it, it was just a different vibe to the city. That's the vibe we were around here when the Lions do what they need to do. You know, when they consistently, you know, winning games, you know, and the fans don't have to, you know, be scared to put their hopes up there because they know it's going to be a letdown and something's going to happen. When we get past that point with the fans, it's going to be just like that around here because it was like that around, you know, our areas, you know, and I don't know how much, I can't say really how much Detroit was like that. When we were winning, because we again we were out in Pontiac and everything, but I again I know it was a different vibe around this whole state when we were winning uh, the way we were winning back in the nineties. How does that vibe compare? I mean, you played in Arizona, you played in Cleveland, played in New York, played in Tampa on some good teams. How does that fan base compare to like when the Lions were in the playoffs and competing when you and Barry were running the show back in the day? Like, how how do those fan bases compare? Yeah, I mean. I, I just think Ben and, and you know I'm kind of cheating a little bit too because I've been doing radio the last four years and I've gotten the opportunity to travel around and see the Lion fans come out for the games as you guys know they travel man we got some passionate Lion fans out there and not just here in the state of Michigan they're everywhere because I'm telling you every game we go to 
It's a lot of Lion fans that always, that's what I always look for now that I've been doing radio. So I, Lion fans, I'm telling you, they're up there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, man, who shocked me, fans that shocked me that had good fans too, was Cleveland, the Cleveland Browns. I mean, they got a fan base too. So I would say right along with the Cleveland Brown fan base, I think Lion fan base is, the base is right up there. We're one of the original teams, man. So, you know, to me, it makes sense that our fan base is so strong the way it is. I've seen a lot of sad sights at the Detroit gate of airports on Monday mornings over the years <laughs> just from people who have traveled, <laughs> yes. you know, all the way you know, to Seattle or to L.A. or whatever. Actually, last week on the podcast, we had um, Chris Burke on, and he was talking about how uh, the L.A. game this year was one of his favorite memories, just seeing all the Stafford jerseys uh, in SoFi, and not just Rams jerseys, but a lot of Honolulu Blue That's right. Stafford jerseys. The, the Lions traveled very well to that game. You're right. Lomas, Lomas ben brought up Barry, and, and so I, I just want to ask you a question that I'm sure you've been asked one million times over the years, but but what was it like to to block for the greatest? Man, for Barry it Sanders? was awesome. It, it was all, well, that, again, that's what defined my career. So he made my career. I'm not going to even lie to you. He made my career. I mean, it was awesome. Now, it was hard. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It was hard because you didn't know where Barry was going to be at. You know what I'm saying? Like conventional backs. They, you tell them to hit the hole to the A, you know, the A gap, or you hit the seven hole, you know, those guys are going to that seven hole. With Barry, you could start off as the, the front side, the backside guy, and end up being the front side guy because Barry would cut it all the way back to you and stuff. So the thing he did was the the and the great habit that I got into, which every lineman should get into that he forced me into was make sure you go to the whistle is bomb. You can't take a play off. You got to block your guy until you hear the whistle because with Barry, you didn't want to be that guy that would, if he cut it back, you were the guy that let your guy come off and tackle Barry. So you had to stay on your guy till the whistle was blown. And I was able to take that with me from Detroit to Cleveland, to Arizona, to Tampa Bay, you know, to the other teams that I went to, I was able to take kind of like that habit I had developed from blocking with Barry with me to the rest of the teams that I played for. So it was awesome, man. Humble, man. I'm telling you, that's the thing, too. Most humble guy. I never seen Barry in the seven of his 10 years that I blocked for him. I never seen him point his finger at a guy and say, man, you missed your block or this or that. And we know how many negative runs he took. Um, and a, a lot of that was his style, too. That's one of my biggest pet peeves, too, is, you know, every time somebody say something about Barry, they always say, well, if he had a better offensive line. But the thing I say, tell me how many offensive lines have two all-pro player, position players on it. You know, if you got an offensive line and you got two all-pros on your offensive line, you got a good line. You want to keep that line. Myself and Kevin Glover being up two all-pro pieces on there. And if you think about it, those are two of your most important pieces that you got. You got your center, who's the quarterback of your offensive line, and you got your left tackle that protects the blind side of your multi-million dollar quarterback. So those are your two most important positions that you want to have solidified on the offensive line. Look at the Lions right now. Frank Ragnow, Taylor Decker. 
I mean, those, so again, you know, so we, I, that's my biggest pet peeve. Barry did. Barry the had Emmett line. He would have did in that. No, Barry's style wasn't like Emmett, where he was just going straight downhill to hit the hole. Barry was going to look, and Barry was going to take chances, and Barry was going to do things that everybody else didn't do. What was your, I mean, I think we've all seen the highlights, right? I, I mean, I, I still catch myself like once a year, it feels like just popping in some Barry highlights from back in the yeah. day. Because not, not only was he the best, but he, he just did it in a way that we've never seen before or since and I, it's hard to imagine ever seeing it again so i guess lomas uh, you know which of his runs it, 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 like is your favorite that you know from when you, you played with him for like a decade i think what run stands out to you as your, your you know your favorite memory from playing with barry so i'll preface it by saying this to start with that kyle ben it was so many runs <laughs> that we used to see on mondays that were minus two yards or maybe just a three yard run or a one yard game that you would be like, Oh my goodness. I'm telling you, man, every Monday when we used to watch film, it used to be at least five plays. You'd be like, how in the world did he do that every Monday? You know, but they might not be highlight plays. They might not be the plays that make ESPN or make the highlight reel. But it'll be the most incredible play that you've ever seen being an offensive lineman and us watching him. But I think the ones that stick out highlight-wise for me is the one, um, the parallel, pirouette um, in Buffalo where he was on one hand and he spent the round. I think it was Bruce Smith and Daryl Talley tried to tackle him on that one. I love that one. I love the one in Chicago when he kind of hurdled a pile, it was a, he uh, ran it to the right, a sweep to the right. And it was about three or four Chicago Bear guys out there that had him. He kind of hurdled them, got out of that pile and took it to the house. And then the other one is, uh, oh God, I had it in the back of my head. But it, I mean, it's just so many. I love the one, when I wasn't here, the one, the one shoe one. The one out of the one shoe, I mean, you know, and I missed that one. And I'm going to tell you my biggest regret, <laughs> jumping off of that. My biggest regret is I missed the 2,000-yard season. That's my biggest regret. I wasn't here for the 2,000-yard season. Like I said, I bought for him for seven of his 10 years. And we had an opportunity in 95 to get him, no, 93, I'm thinking, uh, versus the Dolphins. On Christmas Day, we had an opportunity. He was 150 yards short of 2,000 going into the Dolphins game. And we tried, man. But it seemed like the Dolphins had guys coming off the sideline tackling Barry. <laughs> man, it was guys coming from everywhere. Man, it was unbelievable, man. He only got 50 yards, 50-some-odd yards that game. And we needed 150. But – that's my biggest regret that I wasn't able to be here for the 2000 yard season. So I, I got just one more for you. I'm Barry. Um, I, I kind of forgot when, until going back and doing my research for the, uh, this interview that, you know, Barry was pretty quiet. Most of that game against the Cowboys, the, the playoff game, mm-hmm. I think he had four carries for eight yards in the first half, 11 carries for 22 yards midway through the fourth quarter. It kind of reminds me of, you know, how you describe how the dolphins approached that game. Like, like just obviously the defensive game plan was geared toward the guy. And then he pops off for the 40, I don't know, 45 yards or so touchdown um, that kind of like, you know, turned that game that, you know, that the top came off uh, the silver dome and everything. I'm just, 
curious, Lomas, your your memory of, of Barry putting the I mean, he he must have broke six tackles on that on that run. It was just a, a crazy play. What was your memory of that play and I mean, to it? For us, Kyle, it was always it was always we knew Barry, he was like a great home run hitter. You know, we knew that he was gonna get one. You you knew he was gonna get him one or two per game. You just didn't know when it was coming, but you knew it was coming. So it's never a surprise. It was never a surprise to me when he did it because you always knew that one was coming. Uh, but I just remember that play, like we needed that play. That was the play that uplifted us. That was the play that really kind of like sealed the deal that we had arrived, you know, to me. That's how you're supposed to seal the deal. And to me, it was poetic justice that Barry did had that touchdown run, especially when he had Tony Casillas looking around trying to find where he was. It was that, that's to me, that's Philly. That's Detroit Lions football. You know, that's, that was 90s Detroit Lions, 90s footballs. That football, that was the essence of it. It was Barry Sanders. You know, that's who you identified us with. So it was to me, it was fitting that he closed the door the way he did, you know, on the Dallas Cowboys on that fateful day. A great, great, great fateful day uh, for us back in 1991. I got one quick more on Barry, too. How we talked about him flipping the field and so much. How many times would you find yourself playing a play to perfection, as it was called, and you look to your left, maybe that's where Barry's supposed to go, and he's not there, and he's on the other side of the field. Maybe like How many times was it just like the exact opposite direction of where you expected him to be, and how hard was that as an offensive tackle? I'm telling you, you're right, Ben. <laughs> it was hard. It, it was, because you're right. Barry was unconventional, but you had to get used to that, because you're right about that. Barry, you know, again, that applied. And sometimes you know, if Barry Woods would keep it front side, it would be a hole there that would develop there. But again, that was B. That was his that was his style, you know, and that's why I say that's why I get so upset when people say that about him. If he had this offensive line or that offensive line, that was just B style. That was his style, man, regardless of the offensive line that he had, I think, in front of him, he was going to have some negative plays because he took chances. He took a lot more chances than a lot of players did, but that was him. That's what made him him, and that's why he's a Hall of Famer and, to me, the greatest running back that played this game. And like I say, on top of that, him being a humble guy and his demeanor about the way he carried himself, the way that he played the game, the way that he represented the game uh, of football by just handing the ball to the referees, just the class that Barry personifies, man. Just everything about him, man. That's just something that the city, the state of Michigan can really ride off the shoulders of. Well, Miss, I want to go back to something you said earlier about how young you guys were. I, I looked it up. Barry was 23 at the time of that uh, playoff win against the Cowboys. Herman was Herman Moore was 22. He was a rookie. I think he had, what, 12 catches that year? as a rookie mm -hmm. uh, and the entire defense was under 30 <laughs> the yeah. defense. It, it seems like it should have been a building block 
stepping stone kind of thing. And and yet, I mean, you went you won five games the following year, never won another playoff game, and the Cowboys became what they became in the nineties. I guess what in your opinion, you know, what what happened? Why did it unravel so quickly? And I guess are you, you know, surprised in some way that I mean it's we're 30 years later still talking about this is the last Lions win. But, yeah, I mean two things. The biggest thing, the biggest, biggest thing that hurt us that killed that that just killed that team was Mike Utley getting paralyzed and then Eric Andelsek, the late great Eric Andelsek, um, getting killed during that offseason. Because you took Eric Andelsek, people just don't realize how great he was going to be. To me, he was kind of like Larry Allen before Larry Allen. You know, he was that strong of a guy. He was that good of a player. He was going to be our best lineman on our offensive line. You know, and Mike Utley, man, a 6'5 guard, 6'5", almost 300-pound guard that can move out in space. I mean, and that can root guys up out of there. Mike was a young player that was going to be a very, very good player. So our line was set. We were set for years on that offensive line. And to lose two starters within months – you know, it killed us. It killed us because, again, you had no continuity on the offensive line when we came back that following year. And if you don't have any continuity on your offensive line, you guys know, you see what happens. You get a five-win season out of it. And then I just think the other thing is, you know, again, with our coaching staff, you know, we didn't have the best of the best to me. You know, I just felt that we could have upgraded on some of our assistant coaches. You know, you look at, you know, how Barry was utilized. And to me, it's a lot. He could have been utilized a lot more. You know, I think he was underutilized in his career. So, you know, those are some of the things that jump out to me. But the biggest thing is losing Mike Utley and the great late. You know, Eric Andelset, that that was the biggest thing that hurt not only us, the chemistry of the whole line, but hurt our team. Because we were like this, Kyle, Ben. We were a team like this. We were truly a family, man. And to lose two family members just like that, I mean, that would hurt any family. And it would be hard to bounce back over. And then the tragic ways, think about it. One of your guys get paralyzed on the field that you guys play on. Think about it. this: your sacred ground, your home field. You lose one of your guys like that, and then you lose a guy for life. You know, Eric gets killed. I mean, you know, mowing his lawn. How do you overcome something like that that happened to you months apart? And you say that Barry should have been used differently. Lomas, I'm curious what you meant. That's not something I've necessarily I mean, if you look at again, I mean, I just felt we should have threw threw the ball more to Barry. I just think when you got a weapon like a Barry Sanders, you have to get the ball in his hands as much as you can. Barry could catch. Barry could catch. We, I think we underutilized him in the in the passing game. And then I also think we underutilized him in the red zone. Because, you know, I just didn't understand. That's the one thing that I would ask Wayne, and maybe I will when I talk to him again, is, you know, why he pulled Barry out when we got towards the end zone. Think about it. Barry finished with 99 career touchdowns. Barry should have had a lot more than that. Could have had a lot more than that. But towards the, you know, towards the latter part of his career, when we get in the red zone, a scoring position, and I was talking about red zone, we used to talk about red zone in terms of 
when we inside the 10 yard line, that used to be red zone to us in our mind, but we would take Barry out and Barry was a weapon. You know, a smaller back is a weapon in the backfield when you're in goal line situations. I don't know why everybody thinks bigger is better. I mean, if you got a Derrick Henry, yeah. But to me, smaller is better because, again, they hide behind those offensive linemen. You can put a full back in front of them. And, again, before the defense could sort them out, those guys could be in the end zone. Plus, you're talking about Barry Sanders. Yeah, no, we've talked about that. I remember talking about that with you in training camp earlier this year and just kind of because Barry Sanders is one of those undeniable you can't miss talents. You know why? Do you think it was just where the game was at the time, like not passing to him, not looking at him as just an offensive threat or just a pure running back? I mean, and you, just a two-pointer here, you say, Barry, we all know him as humble. Did he ever say, give me the ball, give me that, the ball? That, no, then that was, you know, to Barry, that was one thing that we used to always want Barry to do is to stand up more you know say more but Barry that that's not how Barry is so Barry wasn't gonna you know stand up and say hey you know give me the damn ball you know that's just not how he is and you know I commend him because he's that's the way he's been his whole life so he shouldn't have had to do that but I mean if you're trying to win games you get the ball in the hands of your most valuable person, the person that's going to give you the best chance of scoring touchdowns, and that's Barry. And with his leaping ability, man, he could have left. I I mean, again, you could have had your line submarine and guys, and Barry just going over the top. Barry had that type of leaping ability. We know the strength that he had in his leg. I just think it was a strategy that Wayne went to later on and that was the strategy that he wanted to use was when he wanted, uh, when we got inside the five, 10 yard line, he was going to put in a bigger bag. I don't know, you know, but no, I mean, I think you use Barry. Well, Miss, we're uh, running a little short on time here. I, I just wanted to, to bring this full circle, maybe you you had said one of the reasons why you guys were so good um, back then was the talent you had on the offensive line. You know, of course, with Barry and everything, but the con- the consistency you guys had up front was a big reason for the success. And the lack of con- you know continuity on the offensive line was a reason that things fell apart. And I guess when you look at where the team is today, uh, you know, uh, heading into 2022, I mean, there's so much talent up front and yeah. and continuity um, potentially as well. Each of these five guys up front is. Uh, under a contract through at least 2024. So not only is there three first round picks up there and a lot of talent and, you know, Frank's right now is already a, a you know, pro bowl player and, and Taylor Decker doing some really good things at left tackle. And then you got Panay Sewell, who, I mean, I, that, that's a monster rookie season, especially when you consider how much he was moving around and how much, uh, how many great pass rushers that guy saw. Um, so I guess I was, I, I just wanted to get your perspective as a former, you know, all pro left tackle and one of the the greats of your generation. What are your thoughts on this offensive line, the talent they have up there? And I guess in particular Sewell, just because, you know, he's, we've seen one year from him. What makes that guy so good? And, and you know, what, what do you think he can become here going forward? Hey, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm excited. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a former offensive lineman, which I am, but I'm, man, these guys <laughs> get me. Man, I haven't been excited about an offensive line, and I'm talking about an offensive line in the NFL in a while. I mean, these guys got a chance to, you know what? I'm telling you, these guys, if they keep them together, and, and of course, I'm telling you, the, the other key is Hank Fraley. He got to stay here. He got to keep coach here. 
you know, and stuff, because he's done a great, great job, especially with being able to have guys fill in Evan Brown and Matt Nelson and all the guys, Kramer, and all the guys we had to have fill in, and they seen us to be filled in. And then think about this. He took Big V, who we all say struggled last year, right? All us to a T, every media member. Then think Big V had a good year. Look what he did this year. To me, he was our best lineman, if you think about it. He was quiet. You didn't hear no hardly any penalties. You know, and he was, to me, he was our best, best lineman uh, this year was Big V. So he took to him, and he's probably had the best year he's had. So we got to keep Hank. But I, I'm, they're getting to the point, if they put a few years together, they'll be able to get a nickname. And, you know, that's, that's big. When you can get a nickname as an offensive line, that's big because you got to live up to that. But, you know, so that's why I said a couple more years now. We can't do it right now because they're still young. They're still formulating things. But I'm excited, especially when we get Frank back. And then, like you say, you know, a healthy teller for a whole year. And then you still, you put the young pup. Leave him over at right tackle. I always said that. Just leave him over there. Let him learn the game of football. He got to learn the NFL. You know, you still have to do that regardless of whatever position that you're in. You got to learn how to play in the NFL. So leave them over there and let them, you know, let them continue to learn over there while you got uh, Taylor playing at a high level. Jonah took his game to another level this year. So I'm excited, man, because, again, you can put anything behind a great offensive line. I don't care what skill positions you put behind a great offensive line. They should be able to work. So to me, that's the thing that gets me really, really pumped about the Detroit Lions going into 2022. You know what I like about Panay too, Lomas, is that obviously he's a really talented player, but talent doesn't always translate to the NFL. You see a lot of guys fall apart even with talent. And what I liked about him was they put him at right tackle. And then like a couple of days before the opener, they move him back to left tackle because the, the Decker injury. And he plays so well against Bosa and the 49ers. And mm-hmm. really outside of weeks four and five, where he did have uh, some struggles, like he, right. was, he was very good all year. Uh, and he did it despite bouncing between right to left, back to right. Like that's a huge challenge for anyone. And he did it at 20 years old, the youngest, youngest left tackle in the league. And on top of all of this, Lomas, the guy... He's mean, like he's mean on the field. He's a rookie, 20, 21 year old, youngest left tackle in the league. And he's out there sparring with Aaron Donald. Like, like the guy is just not afraid. And I I mean, I'm sure you saw it too, Lomas, but there was a lot of games where he's just like, as he's walking off the field, he's looking back at the other sideline, like just John, you know, like (laughs) the guy doesn't back down. And I think that's really the kind of thing that that Holmes and and Dan Campbell get excited about is they try to outfit this, this rebuild that he's not just a a, a talented guy you can build around, but he's got that attitude they're looking to, to to infuse this team with. Yeah. He's, he's going to be good. He, he, I I, I say he, he'll probably be better than I was. I'm telling (laughs) you, if you get the longevity, man, I'm telling you, man, because you're right. I see all the twos in him, and he's only going to get keep getting better. He's a good kid. He's a humble kid. That's what I like about him from me talking to him. He's a good, humble kid. Yes, sir. No, sir. 
you know, so it's good. So, he, yeah, he's got a bright, bright future. I know that Lomas Brown would leave the lines in uh, very good shape here going, <laughs> going forward. Uh, Lomas, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it, you know, lending us your insights there. And what it was like, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, that, those are some great teams, and it's been lean since. And, uh, you know, it's fun to fun to hear about it. Yeah, and I, I just like, just leaving off, I just like to say, man, I played with some great guys. Just some of the guys, like I say, Benny Blades. You're talking about the Jason Hansons, the Eddie Murrays, the Mel Graves. You know, you talk about the guys, like I said, Kevin Glovers, but Ken Dallafor. You know, you talk about all the great, great guys that I played for, the Lawrence Peets, the Calvin Pritchards, you know, the Pat Swillings, the Mike Colfers, the Bill Gaze. You know, I just like those guys to be a knowledge because those guys kind of set the foundation. You know what I'm saying? And I hadn't been good. It hadn't been good over these 30 years. But I'm telling you, man, the legacy, I think, on the Dan and this coaching staff and Brad and them, I think the legacy is getting ready to get stronger and stronger. I think we got something to build upon. Yeah, it's the ultimate team game. And I think that's one of the yeah. things that, that we all love about it. It's certainly one of the things I love about it, that, that you can't do it alone. You know, t- even Tom Brady can't do it. Like it's a, that's right. you know, it's a, it's a team affair. Uh, and uh, you, you guys had it back in the day. And I think there's a lot to like about where things are trending, trending these days, but a lot of work still to do. Yeah, forward. yeah, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Lomas Brown. Thank you very much. Take care, fellas. Thank you, Lomas. This has been Ben Raven and Kyle Mikey of MLive's Detroit Lions Beat. Thank you for listening to the Dungeon of Doom and MLive Detroit Lions podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast, Apple, Spotify, Google. Like I said, wherever you get them and listen to them, make sure to subscribe to the Dungeon of Doom. Thanks again.